Welcome travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your not-so-humble guides on the quest for RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. On our show, we feature diverse tabletop RPG systems, demonstrating them through actual plays and breaking down the rules to provide you with tips, tools, and techniques to help you navigate them. We also love bringing the content creators behind these games into the studio to give you a peek behind the curtain with relevant and insightful interviews. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world or system you're playing. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, diverse NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Hello, my name is Michael, and I have two minutes or less to tell you all about Action 12 Cinema, my brand new GMless zero prep game designed for telling over-the-top action movie style stories with hands full of D12 dice, the best die, the pinnacle of the polyhedral. You may already be familiar with the game. I had the opportunity to play it over here on this very feed. The game that I played with Josh, Glenn, and Lee Wanika was a fabulous example of what types of stories this game is good for telling and gives you a good idea of what it might play like at your table with your friends. In addition, we actually created a new mechanic after this game. If you've listened to it, it'll make more sense, but we've added in a needle drop mechanic. So it's an additional way for players to adjust their die pool in a favorable direction if they can name drop or even sing the perfect song to play over the action at the time in the story. I really hope you'll take an opportunity to check out the game when it comes to Kickstarter on February 28th. Josh has been kind enough to put links in the show notes to make it super easy for you to get over there, whether it's a $1 here you go donation, a digital level for the PDF, or go big and you know get a copy of the game. It would mean the world to me. And once again, I just want to say thank you to the fine gents at Tabletop Journeys for having me on multiple times to talk about it and to show it off in the actual play. And now, on to the show. Welcome, everybody, to today's show. Very excited to go ahead and be continuing our month featuring BIPOC creators in the tabletop role-playing game space. But before we introduce our interviewee for tonight, Mr. Myers, Mr. Miller, good evening. How are things down in the wonderful state of Connecticut? Although I'm doing quite well. It snowed this morning and we had bright sunshine in the afternoon and the house stayed warm. You can't get a whole lot better than that. That's literally all... Nearly all the things. Oh, yes, I ate dinner, so I'm fat and happy. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. <sighs> Lots of running around for uh, Trish and I down here. We are still in Connecticut until the 15th of February, day after Valentine's okay. Day. We start our journey okay. south. But we're still running a lot around like crazy people because it is very chilly today. But this weekend, it's going to be 
super, super chilly. Super cold, yeah. So today I was buying foam boards and tape so that tomorrow I can build a skirt around the RV after we go out and fill propane and gas to make sure our mm-hmm. pipes don't freeze. Woo. Nice. Yeah, boy, that sounds exciting. That's, then we're going and, to and Florida. That, so in three weeks, I'll be like, ha ha, suckers. <laughs> That's right. And uh, the cold weather is definitely something that our guest tonight can relate to also. All the way from the snowy north. Some of them actually live further north than I live. All the way that from never Toronto. happens on this show. I know. It never <laughs> happens. Exactly. Let me introduce everybody to Kiana Shaw. Kiana from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Kiana, welcome to Tabletop Journeys. Lovely to have you this evening. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. <laughs> As you can tell, we are super excited to have you here. Absolutely. Before we kind of, before we get into peppering you with uh, softball questions, uh, give our listeners a little bit of a primer on who you are and why you're here. Sure. So I am a queer Chinese Canadian TTG writer, designer, safety tool consultant, uh, all many hats in the world. I also used to be an actual play streamer and I just have been around in the space for a while, but some of you may know me from my work in Candlekeep Mysteries or Starforged or Die, and I'm also the co-author of the award-winning setting book, Archon, City of Neon Daylight, and I'm also the co-curator of the TTRPG Safety Toolkit, which is a free resource available for people to learn about, access, and use safety tools at their tables. So several things out of a wide variety of things. Uh, it, it makes for a very long bio and very difficult to summarize. <laughs> I'm sure, exactly, yeah. I can absolutely agree with that. I was asked over the weekend to put just my current projects together for another group, and that was a bit more challenging than I would have thought when I was asked the question. I'm like, huh, I do this and this? Oh, yeah, but then there's also that and that, and then there's this, and yeah, it can be a lot sometimes. <laughs> Nothing wrong with being well-rounded. No, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely absolutely not. Sure. There, there are worse problems to have, and I'm very proud to have the problems I've got. <laughs> exactly right? right. We're super happy to go ahead and have your voice on the show tonight. Like I said at the beginning of the show, we really wanted to go ahead and take this month to go ahead and focus on BIPOC voices, but we're really glad to go ahead and have your voices extremely dynamic and extremely diverse, and we're really happy to, to have you on the show tonight, Kiana. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. All right, gentlemen, I guess without any further ado, it's time to get into question time already. Yeah. D20s to the ready. So My digital the, D20 uh, is ready. All right, gotcha. go with the maroon and gold tonight. Your poor 49ers lost this weekend, but I'll go with the maroon and gold die instead of the instead of the green and white die. Stop hurting me. <laughs> that's a 14, got, which I think is what how many quarterbacks they had to go ahead and play in that game. So let's. I actually think we got to 16 of them when it was all said and done. But, and just for that, I rolled an 18 because, you know. Oof, well, excellent. All right. What do you got, Glenn? I got a 15, which I'm claiming is a technical 15 because weirdest thing that I've ever had happen. You know how the little die rolls across the screen and stops on the number? Uh-huh. Yeah. The number on the digital representation of the die said 15, but the results window that opens up says seven. I'm going with the 15. So Are you now. rolling at negative eight somehow, or is that? I guess. I must have negative eight to initiative today. Uh, so, so maybe given your dexterity, I can imagine you with a one dexterity, Glenn. That's- whoa, bro. Well, back it up. I am exceptionally de- dexterous for a big guy. I am quite yeah. graceful for a dude my size. The phrase big guy is doing a lot of heavy lifting right there. <laughs> Would you argue with the description that I'm exceptionally graceful for a guy my size? I would say you're exceptionally graceful and infinitely more graceful than I. 
<laughs> that bar, however, is being said about five three kid. Exactly. <laughs> That's all I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. So. All right. Then so it's gonna be Luanika, Glenn, and then myself. Because I don't want to get scooped on this question, it's actually a better number two question. But I'm gonna put this one out here because I really enjoyed just reading the opening chapter of Archon and specifically your introduction, which does a really great job of setting the tone for what we're about to get into. And the book is f absolutely fun. As I'm reading it, I'm like, I could make scenes with that. I could do an adventure here. This is an, th I, there, there's a situation that I want to make here. But one of the things that I really liked about your opening was just a really brief, honest discussion about the setting, the cyberpunk setting, and what is and should be that setting versus what is and what should not be that setting. And I phrase it that way because it is very clear that in the last 30 years of gaming, tabletop gaming, some of those things that should not be a part of this setting have unfortunately been a part of this setting. My question is, when you're trying to weave that weave this story and this fun space this make it safe for players to feel comfortable playing in as heroes in this world and you made it very clear that there is no good corporation here they are always going to be on that other side of what you're trying to do they're always going to be the challenge versus the solution how do you do that and have the heroes rail against some of those things without at the same time encouraging them to want to perhaps be one of those things or take over one of those organizations. That seems to me to be the really challenging end. When I've written things, I've always struggled with that. I want to make this really cool villain that everybody has to want to go against. And then I realize, man, there are people who actually want to be like that. Like, th why would you ever want that? And so please – there is a question and all that. Please forgive me, but if you can, <laughs> enlighten us there. Yeah, for sure. Basically, I guess this is probably a good idea to talk about like the roots of why Archon came to be in the first place. So I love cyberpunk. Do, I, do Android, Human, Electric, Sheep, Blade Runner are, are like extremely formative pieces of media for me. And they're just like really intriguing, a really intriguing drama to go into. But as I got older and I became more literate in being able to analyze media, there was a lot of things that I started to butt up against in the last few decades of cyberpunk and even just the origins of cyberpunk itself being rooted in Orientalism, the yellow peril, the idea that Japan and China would take over the world via their, their technology and how terrible that would be. And so I ended up working a lot at that. And at the time I was like doing my own fiction writing and stuff. So I started kind of playing with the genre and seeing what was still at the core of the genre, even if we took out the, the bigotry, if we took out the ableist idea that the more at modifications you have to your body, the less human you are because people have prosthetics in our everyday lives, like people change their bodies and can change their body. And that's also a very transhumanist thing and inclusive of trans people. If we think about, if we take away the idea that the more you modify your body, the less human you are. And so I really started playing with that. And then at the same time, right before Archon was starting to be developed, the cyberpunk video game was announced. 
And that was like a, oh, all of this is, again, you're just butting up against the same things. You're going against the big bad corporation. It's the Asian one. The one with the very clear Asian name. And there were also a lot of the TTRPGs at the time because I was intrigued in what if I wanted to play a game in this. So many of that was, was again, rooted in this. Either you want to do, either you're in a world that it's not just a capitalist hellscape. It's also extremely, the game itself makes you play into bigotries, but also it gives you the incentive to go and work as a part of the corporation or as part of the company. Archon actually started as just a text RP setting for myself and my friend Jason Coutron, who eventually became the co-author of this book. Uh, and we we're like, we want to do some cyberpunk-like text RP. None of the settings or games that are out there fit that. And so we ended up starting to develop the world. And part of that was in creating those principles, those principles at the introduction of the book, talking about in this book of Archon, in this particular iteration of cyberpunk, this interpretation of cyberpunk we're taking, we have distilled the tension to be between the capitalist system and people and communities. And so sure, I think there's also, there are going to be people who are going to want to play the bad guys and who like are drawn towards that. And that can be fine. There are some great games that allow you to do that in a fun and interesting way. But I made it pretty clear in the book that if you're a fascist or like a bigot, that this book is not for you. I believe you said they were banned. They're like, they're not for you. You're not allowed to buy this. Not not allowed. (laughs) But also there's the idea that like you can, you design for the people who you want to play it. And there are always going to be people who will want to abuse that type of thing. I think this goes with any game system or any tool that you create. There are going to be people who can and will abuse it. What's more important is designing for the people who will use it correctly and not constantly thinking about those edge cases because you can't always get rid of those edge cases. Instead, what you do is you give the scaffolding and the tools and structure for the people who want to engage in your thing in good faith. So that's, again, why we put those principles in place because we say, here is the scaffolding of the cyberpunk stories that you are likely going to play in in this game because we say that all corporations are bad. We say that we're not ableist about our prosthetics. Everything is accessible. Like we we have the principles that it's, we, we remove every single, there, there's no racism, there's no sexism, there's no malicious oppression, everything, but we can still have interesting stories because the main thing is that it's our corporate overlords that are bad and that they will, capitalistic inequalities is enough to be a dystopia. And so we, we assume that if someone's going to come in and want to play like if they're like you know what we're at a table where we're all mature enough and we have safety tools in place and stuff to incorporate facets of racism for example that we want to explore we will assume that they will they they can do that on their own but at default that's not what the interesting thing about archon is and we make that pretty explicit and we give every single we give so much attention and detail to the tension that appears from just huge economic disparities and I think that there's enough material there for people to want to engage in that to not then go, oh, but what if we took over the corporation? I don't think we have any, we don't have any groups there either that like any of the NPCs or stuff that would give the players the opportunity to do that. Because at most, the closest that you get is if you're part of the faction group of the the upstarts, the people who make their own small companies to try to like provide alternatives to the big, to the big corporations. But even that, like they have, they're playing this weird political game 
And that's the only option we give them to get even close to the corporate world. Everything else is very much engaging with the community and the city from a very anti-corporate fashion. And I did read about one of those upstart corporations. I forget the name, but they're the one that were basically selling cybernetics to the Melbourne yeah. types. And they, I think they were probably as close as I saw <laughs> as providing the alternative because they were – but at the end, at their secret agenda is we just want to overthrow one of the guys so we get there. And then, it, then all bets are off. Like everything else was – how we build up enough to get there. And then once we're there, who cares? Like, that's really the feel I got. Like, players could be duped, and there's some good story in that. There's some great drama in that, duped into believing these are the true believers. They're going to help us take down the system. And then when you really get to it, all they just wanted was to be part of the system, and you just help them. Now what are you going to do to take them down also? And realize there is no good part of the system. And I really got that feel from that, and that was exceptionally well-written with that faction. What a great answer. That was, that was fabulous. That was. Yes. That's a pretty good question. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it touched on mine and half scooped me. I was tempted to give you the bird while uh, <laughs> Kiana was speaking, but I was afraid that if I did, Kiana might think that I was giving them the bird and that wouldn't yeah. be cool. So I did not. So for my question, I'm just going to, I'm going to skew received. off of that. I'm going to skew off of that a little bit because it, your answer really touched on some of the stuff that I was going to ask, but that's okay. I can work with it. So I really liked the concepts that you put forth there. I love the inclusivity. I love the fact that you've specifically written it to have created a society where a lot of the normal prejudices and stereotypes aren't present to time, take that out of the focus to bring it towards. And the, struggle is as old as time. Damn the man, down with the system, just going straight up financially too with Robin Hood. All of that is like 100% in line with creating wonderful adventures within this city. And you spent a lot of time talking about how no corporation or company could be good. And I agree with that personally, because I honestly think that everything, once it's organized to a certain per percent, to a certain level, becomes corrupt. Your local bridge club, if it got escalated to a national society of bridge club members in some fashion, parts of it would start going south because you get that many people involved when something's organized to that point, somebody's going to put their finger on the wrong buttons and things go crappy. All of that to say, because I am getting somewhere eventually, I promise. <laughs> because when I was reading it, that was my one concern, my one takeaway, because as a storyteller and as a game player, I don't like to limit my players and what they can do in terms of the way that they're trying to go. And I love the idea that upstarts because that does give them a way to start their opposite, the opposite agenda, small corporation to fight the man that way too within the system, which I like. But what guidance would you give to storytellers out there trying to, to run and present your Archon setting who want to bring in not a good corporation, but at least a corporation that's not evil and in some degrees because they do exist that's evident in the lore writing corporations who might not always have the public's best interest at the bottom of their priority like the corporation blank slate i believe was the name that came in and stopped the original government and established the new government to try to make the city better so how does a middling corporation fit in an archon how does a corporation yeah. who's not really out to take care of you, but isn't trying to screw you and might even give you some solid advances as long as you're working within their agenda? What does that look like? And how do you run that in Archon? I 
think that's, I think we can say that's most of our real life capitalist world is companies that there aren't, there aren't a lot of like overtly evil companies out there. Like I would say Amazon, uh, but <laughs> stuff like that. Um, but as you're growing up to a certain scale, no matter what you do, right? Yeah. But most companies don't see themselves as trying to fuck other people over. They might try to screw over other competition, but they're not. They don't see themselves as doing things that are bad for other people. I think private health is a really great example of this. Because private health companies will come in and say, look, we provide faster services. We don't have to wait as long. We have top-notch doctors who are able to do get your surgery that you need or check you out at unusual hours of the day that you wouldn't get with public health services. But by being part of the system and by making and then and by making health a commodified thing, it blocks off access for people. It makes it therefore that good healthcare is only accessible by people who are able to afford it. And if they can't afford it, they either can't reach it or they'll get thrown into lifelong debt. We have seen this many times in our real world. Um, so in that case, they're not necessarily going, oh, we're, we take as much, although some of them are, <laughs> we take as much money as we can for people who are sick. These, some I loved of them your ha ha ha. Thank you. When you do uh, sound like, <laughs> like they don't always think of the, it's not always presented that way. And they definitely don't present that. They don't try to present that way to the public. But at the end of the day, what they care about is their bottom line. And by participating in healthcare in the way they do with the private, only a certain threshold of people can afford it, it means that they feed into the system. They feed into the system of dehumanizing people, of making healthcare not a, a basic right. Um and so for storytellers who are going into a setting like Archon, I think that's really the main thing that they have to approach it with is that companies may have quote unquote good intentions in mind, but at the end of the day, whatever they're doing action wise has to feed back into the fact that they're enforcing a stratified social class. They're enforcing extreme poverty versus extreme wealth. And you can have that in, let's say, a company promises something to your group of players. Yeah, we can, we'll give you this thing. But if they get any pressure from like the corporate, the corporate council, the government in place, or if they get any pressure or if they know, you know what, actually this thing that we would promise you to do would give our co competition a leg up. Sorry, we can't do that. It's just, we have to survive too. Right. They form themselves as entities and as like give themselves the same amount of rights as people do or even more right. rights than people do. So I think at this like storytellers should be thinking about the fact that most of these companies and I think we do we present any of the corporations as not trying to be out there. They don't think that they're out there just for themselves. They think they're there to provide social like social good and services. And that's part of the dystopia of Archon is that all of your social services come from corporations who can decide one day to be like, we're losing money or we're not making as much right. money as we could, but we're going to tax you more. Like they don't really have taxes, but they can hike up the prices of things. Or for example, for the prosthetic companies, like the cybernetic company, they go, we have our own ecosystem. This was actually based on Apple, by the way. It's like, we have our own ecosystem of our products. We don't want you to go get it repaired by anyone else because they could ruin it. Or they like, oh yeah, it's built in that things only last for this amount of years because at their bottom line, they want to make money and money is based on subscription service and by you buying the latest and newest thing. Uh, and is that actually the best social good? No, not necessarily, but they're one of the best ones out there. 
they're one of the most easily accessible things and they make that happen. And functional obsolescence is a grand evil. <laughs> a, yeah. a grand evil in the world. I'm not a fan. <laughs> I say that as someone who has an iPhone, right? Who just had to switch over their phone because they were like, hey, so you only had two years on this phone. How to change it over? I'm like, great, thanks. <laughs> Go pay a bunch of money for that. Right. So yeah, so that's what I would say is don't make the companies explicit. Like you can frame that in how you're telling the story, but in how the corporations move in the world, they don't think they're explicitly evil. They think that they're doing some form of good, but at the end of the day, their actions speak and add to that systemic oppression, even if they don't want to, or even if they don't right. think that they're doing it. Trapped in the same system as everybody else at this point, because it's the only yeah. way the city knows and how to run. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the terrible dystopia of it all, is that's how the story, that's how the city runs. What they decided that, hey, you know what, our democratically elected government wasn't working for us when the nuclear disaster happened. So we're going to go with a group of companies running a city instead, because that'll be so much better for us. It didn't sound like they decided that. It sounded like Blank Slate decided that for them. That is true. Yes. One company went, hmm, what if we were the government instead? And all the other ones were like, what if we were the government instead? And then they disappeared, or did they? Perhaps they're secretly running <laughs> yeah. everything. A whole lot of people said, seat at the table. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so this has been already fantastic this is so great i'm so enjoying our conversation so far so thank you very much before Absolutely. i ask my question i have only an observation that that i only think i'm sure that glenn and lee Winico saw it when they read the book but the fact that you refer to meriwether manufacturing as cor- as the source of the nuclear meltdown mm-hmm. we just we just kickstarted our in september and we had called before we had a title for the book we called it we gave it a f- fancy project name and it was project meriwether before before it had a formal book name and so when i read right. M- meriwether manufacturing and the meriwether meltdown i was like you know what that kind of describes the kickstarter process of some part <laughs> the meriwether meltdown That's, yeah. That's, yeah. we're almost done man we're almost done we're almost we're almost done. Exactly. Yeah. We're doing the layout now. We promise. Um, all that to go ahead and say, I I knew that this was going to be a, f- a fantastically interesting topic to dive into and to go ahead and pick your brain on. When I read, there's a quote in the first chapter, and I'll read the quote here, and it's, no matter the iteration it appears in, cyberpunk is inherently personal and political. And it immediately made me, and I read all, all the other stuff that you were talking about with cyberpunk, about how the orientalist nature and the kind of the corporate superstructure gets added onto everything. It reminded me of uh, Shadowrun in particular, one of my favorite games of all time. But I was like, oh, wow. Shit, she's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, cool. <laughs> right, yeah. And even I was thinking, we're replaying it now, but it's it's a Powered by the Apocalypse build that was based on the Faith No More album, The Real Thing. And again, it also has this kind of like weirdly technological dystopian feel to it. And it's like, yeah, nope. That's So there's like the personal aspect of it. Like here we are kind of like stuck in the machine and half of the adventure is trying to figure out what the hell is actually going on? And I'm not sure that we ever really figured it out by the end of the adventure, which is part of the fun. Oh, we so, did. Yeah. We yeah. not remember, oh, but we yeah. did. Yeah. We got it. Yeah. Like 12 hours later. Like it took a while. You know, oh, yeah, it did. It did yeah, definitely yeah. take a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, so hey, we might 
could even get to finish airing that last piece that we didn't put out originally yeah. now, which will be cool. Because yeah. yeah. we didn't want to give it away when the Kickstarter came out. Yeah, the yeah, plot yeah. The thing. But now that the book is actually arriving, we can actually send that out. But the, so I have a two-part question for you. The first one is, where do you think the interaction between cyberpunk and politics is? That's a really big question. We've only got like 32 minutes left. Do what you can with that. But what might be the easier question is, why do you think that cyberpunk is such a powerful mirror for personal and political conflict and staging and stuff like that? That is two questions, Josh. <laughs> I can fold them into one answer. So when we wrote that cyberpunk is personal and political, it is. It's a all media is political. All TTRPGs, all books, everything is political. And our interpretations of that genre is also political because based on our personal experiences and our beliefs and the such. So coming into it, cyberpunk is such a poignant genre because I think out of all genres, any speculative fiction is a really good one for our understanding our current world and our current understanding by projecting it into a fantastical or futuristic thing. It allows us to focus in on the specific aspects of our experiences and therefore creating something that is much more honed in on themes or ideas that are at play in our lives. And so I think a lot of people, especially nowadays, really feel the pressure of capitalism. Like people were feeling it back in the 80s with the origination of cyberpunk. But most of the time, most of where the journal was feeling the pressure from was, again, the fear of the East coming in and taking over the West as the boom of technology and technological advancements came from Japan and China at the time. And so as things have moved, our, we still resonate with a lot of the ideas that we are just a part of a system that we can't go up against because we do live in capitalism right now, especially in the Western world. And we can feel it all the time. We see it all the time with GoFundMe's for, for ex- emergency medical expenses. We see it all the time with people on the verge of homelessness. We see this all the time just day to day, nowadays with their inflation going up, right? And the the increasing difficulty of buying groceries. And so I feel like people really can feel that. And then when they want to explore it, they mirror their own experiences back into this futuristic world where, although cyberpunk is really based on nihilism and this idea that whatever you do, there's still the system that's oppressing you, there's still a catharsis that comes through from playing it or from trying to make a difference against it, from going against the man, even if fictionally, uh, to allow you to then, to then look at your own life and go, how am I going up against the man in my everyday life? And what ways can our society shift to, to lessen this pressure and burden that we have on ourselves? So yeah, and then of course everyone feels that pressure differently, especially coming from different different identities and different cultural backgrounds and different like for myself as someone who is Chinese Canadian who is a queer person, who's a trans person, I experience the pressures of capitalism differently than than any of you would. And you all have everyone has that different that different lens that they're seeing things through. And so by making it personal, by giving people the permission to be personal with their cyberpunk, I think it becomes more powerful and become closer to what the cyberpunk genre kind of was and should be as an expression of our frustration with the world 
and our hopes for what it could be as an alternative, as a manifestation of how we could push up against that. So yeah, that's all to say that it's a very, it's a deeply personal genre for people. And I think it's why people like really like the aesthetics of it and companies have really latched onto the aesthetic of it because they're like, we know people like this and we strip and they, they strip away all the politics of it and therefore neutralize into this like cyber pop thing where it's all about neon lights and rain and like cool tech and otherwise no teeth to it. And so and- Archon's whole thing and my whole, my whole thing with the cyberpunk genre is trying to put the teeth back into the genre. Yeah. And right. the only and way to do cyberpunk. that is cyberpunk. Yeah. So you could get it's, cybernetic it's chainsaw teeth. <laughs> you have to put the punk back into cyberpunk right and yeah. to do that is to make it political and therefore then also personal yeah i think i hope that answered those two questions <laughs> it does yeah and it's it good funny is the wrong word but it's the closest word that i can come up with but it's it's funny that you mention like gofundme because just earlier this week i learned that that Annie Wershing, who played the Borg Queen in Picard in season two, passed away. She she was diagnosed with cancer a couple of years ago, passed away. And then I found a link that there's a GoFundMe set up by her sister to go help support. She's got three kids, three sons, but to help support them going forward. And I was like, man, you know what? How is that possible that she was on 24? She was on a bunch of other shows too. I was like, how is it actually possible that in this day and age, that somebody who had that role in that show on with Paramount, like on that channel, is still in a situation that that's necessary and that's required. You know, what kind of financial pitfalls are without, waiting yeah. are out there? No, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Without me so. spending too much time on my soapbox, but having spent <laughs> a little over, just on just about two years working in the health insurance industry. The answer to that question, and having also had some previous time doing human resources and trying to figure out navigating these systems for people and helping people try to select the right insurances for their needs. The short answer to that question is cancer is one of the most exorbitantly expensive illnesses a person can ever have. And unless you chose to have very specific types of insurance coverage, there's almost no insurance that's going to cover it. It is not – you have to take some non-standard things. And I don't know what the standard insurance is available for the Screen Actors Guild. I'm assuming she was acting very recently, so she may have still been involved. But what I do know is formerly very prominent actors took very bizarre roles simply to get keep their health insurance. Famously, Ian Ziering did Sharknado for no purpose other than he had to score one role that year to keep his insurance and his wife had just had a baby and he would not have been able to afford it without that role. So he took the easiest role he could grab just so he could maintain his SCAG card. Sharknado is a pretty great role. It became that. (laughs) I have yet to watch Sharknado and I'm still horrified that it exists. It's as ridiculous as it sounds. Yeah, exactly. There's like eight of them now or something like that. I know. It can't be. It's right up there with snakes on a plane, man. (laughs) Yeah. But to be fair, that's the answer to the question. There are a number of other factors too. That's very valid because cancer is insanely expensive. I really appreciate your answer and I appreciate the words you wrote about it being political. That is something that I try to infuse into my games in a way, even though I te- have, have leaned into the fantasy genre, 
my fantasy games can be very political. Uh, Game of Thrones, House of Dragons are personal politics versus I try to do situational or this is how this group wants to govern its people. These are how these people are oppressed. These are how these people are not oppressed or what have you. And a lot of upstairs, downstairs politics, those types of things, because at the end of the day, the one equalizer that goes beyond race that goes beyond gender and gender identity and all of those other uh, factors is cash and power and the power that comes with those who have cash. I think that most tabletop games can use that for narrative drama and it allows experiences that all of us feel in some fashion, whether it be fighting against it fighting to improve it, trying to get back to it, trying to get away from it. The drama is in the fact that just exists. To Glenn's point earlier, the answer is once you get beyond 30 to 40 people, guess what you have? Politics. And it can happen as few as three or four people, by the way. But even in a utopia, your utopia can't be much more than 40 people or you get politics. Do you want early access to every Tabletop Journeys episode? How about exclusive content, live broadcasts, and the chance to throw dice with your favorite hosts and fellow fans? Or, heck, do you just want to support the show? Join our Patreon today at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. We have tiers to fit any budget for a monthly commitment, or you can make a one-time contribution to the cause. We love doing the show for y'all, and support helps us keep creating and producing great content for you. So join us today at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. Try to get to round two of questions here. Let's roll initiative for round two, the Jenkins. All right. That's a 17 Eight. for me this time. I'm rocking a nine. Excellent. All right. First oh, of wow. from worst to first. All right. So zero I'm gonna go ahead zero. and take it. <laughs> I'm gonna take it in an entirely different direction, and not because I appreciate the conversation that we're having about Archon, but there's so don't much you in your portfolio to go ahead and talk about. What's that? So don't you dare scoop me too. <laughs> Might be. Who knows? Yeah. Wait for it. I certainly mentioned this when we were talking ahead of time before we began the show, and I'm not sure if I mentioned it on radio yet, but obviously the Candlekeep Mysteries was a book <clears throat> that influenced our show a lot. It was the first book that when we hadn't actually been recording that long, but when the book came out, we're like, you know what? We can do something with this for our show and for our Patreons, and we were really excited to go ahead and start our Patreon actual play show with running through the Candlekeep Mysteries until it branched off and went from Candlekeep into Wild Beyond the Witchlight, which was a really funny, weird transition, but it worked. And But w- one of the things that struck me about Candlekeep is that there wasn't a book that had come out like that from Wizards of the Coast in a really long time, and certainly not under kind of fifth edition, about how kind of like the kind of episodic nature of it and how all the stories were tied together but not really tied together. And so they kind of had this like thread that ran through them and everything like that. And so what I wanted to dive into is when you were on the writing team and the working team for that, what was really the goal of that project? What was it that you all were trying to do? And do you feel that Candlekeep Mysteries accomplished that goal or was there still work to be done on it? Yeah, at least when I was approached with the project, the original concept was, hey, so these are all a bunch of adventures that all, the only thing that they have to share is that they involve a book 
in Candlekeep in the library. And we were quite encouraged to go out there in terms of our concepts that we came in. Of course, as with any writing process, I came up with some ideas and they're like, not quite that. Try again. (laughs) 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 Which is fine. I was also, that was my first like really big, um, huge publisher projects. I have had a lot of credits before that, but most of them were with small publishers or in collaboration with other people. And so it's just like a little jarring to be like, oh, okay. Since there's, there's a very corporate, like there is a very specific structure that's going on here. All right. And so from my understanding too, looking back on it afterwards, I didn't know who else was on the project at the time. It, it was all kept secret or at least there's not a lot of conversation between who was on it as well, but there was a lot of uh, coming after it is, oh, these are a lot of people who were are involved in the space, but really hadn't done any B&D writing officially before, at least for Wizards of the Coast, which was nice to see. And it did, I think, bring quite a bit of, of interesting new perspectives. For example, my friend Daniel Kwan was part of the book and he wrote the really Chinese-inspired adventure in there. He was able to bring in a lot of the cultural identifier stuff and relook at key in D&D, which is a highly contested little bit of thing there and how monks are flattened into a weird Asian space for no reason in the Western, like Western-centric tabletop game. So I think at, I think people, we were able to bring in some really interesting variety of ventures there and we were able to bring in some new voices to it. I'm, I actually don't know how many people from that point on went forward to do other D&D projects. So it's an interesting spot right on the, like this quote unquote up and coming writers in the D space, but I'm unsure of how that momentum went out because I have done a couple of third-party publisher D&D stuff after that, but a lot of my momentum has continued forward into indie spaces and non-Wizard of the Coast spaces, which added up great after the latest <laughs> debacle. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, yeah. 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 And so it's this interesting thing, and I think we see where it was the first step towards what became Radiance Citadel afterwards, like that kind of first exploration into something that's a little bit different from the traditional format, a little more inclusive of different voices and different ideas. But at the end of the day, it's still a Wizard of the Coast product, and there are certain things that they want to uphold there. Yeah, so I have a few, I have some ideas that are tucked away that I'm like, oh, these were not quite what they wanted, but maybe I can go and bring those into another game at some point. But yeah, so I think as an overall thing, I'm really proud of what I wrote in there. And I'm really proud of everyone everyone else wrote and the opportunities that were presented in there. But like at the end of the day, Candle Keep just another piece in the in in my portfolio for me. I'm intrigued about I'm like happy about it. And obviously a lot of publishers like seeing it there. Be like, ah, you have worked for the big <laughs> name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you have been to the top of the mountain, I see. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I'll say you, I'm, I'm also, and then I'll let you guys move on with the second question here, but I'm also super excited to get my copy of Anansi's Tapestry of Lives any day now. I'm waiting for it to ship and wait for <laughs> my, my copy of Happy Kickstarter backer on uh, on that project. So, uh, yeah. Hey. Right. Josh is How a did, serial Kickstarter backer. He can't. I am a serial himself. Kickstarter I mean, backer. It's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How did he manage to scoop Guilty. both Glenn and me in that? In that? <laughs> he didn't scoop me. I'm fine still. I got scooped. And in the last yeah, statements, no. I, my question was going to be about the Anasis. <laughs> I wasn't keeping track. I'm not sure who has question two, though. <laughs> Lee Wanika beat my, not my eight with his nine. So uh, my question, and I'm going to go 
I'm going to go back to Archon for a brief moment because there was a piece that I just thought was fun and it spoke to my comic book roots a lot. And that was the discussion about the IEZ and, and specifically because it so reminded me of the Cursed Earth from Judge Dredd comics. Everything outside of the walled city is bad. And one of the greatest punishments in, in uh, Mega City 1 is to be ban- banished to the cursed earth. Basically, they throw you outside the walls and you get to walk out in the desolate lands. And I recognize it's not exactly like that at all in, in Archon, but I did that concept and it made me think about future because the end of your book, you talk about that there may be more in the future for Archon in this, this setting. And it made me think, do you have ideas tucked away, uh, other cities across the IEZ? Might there be another city that somewhere that that travelers from another city may come, that kind of thing? Like how – what else is out there is in store for the denizens of Akron City? Yeah, so with Archon, we very specifically made it an isolationist city. And we're like, what's the worst thing that could have happened to force people into one place and stay there? And we're like, nuclear disaster seems about right. Because a lot of, in any tabletop game, if you present a pl- players with an interesting place, if you don't give them a reason to stay, they'll be like, but what is over there? Let me go over there now. And so we very specifically focused the setting on the city itself and made it difficult to be outside of it. But we do have like little threads and pieces out there. We have the Druids who live in the IEZ and they manage to be out there and somehow survive and then come in to do trade or bring people out there to find the, imagine like a nuclear wasteland with all of the artifacts from our time, right? Our present day that are lost in there. And so we have, there's some space and we have some ideas about presenting more of that travel out into the nuclear wasteland, like what weird vaults are out there, what weird ruins are out there, what things from our present day we can bring in. But most of our expansion is going to be still within the city wall itself because we want to keep building layers upon it. And what we were able to do when we crowdfunded our con through Itch.io was being able to get money to pay other writers to add to the world. Because at the end of the day, Jason and I have our own perspectives of the city and what we can bring to it. And we were very eager and interested to see what other people could bring into it. So we were able to bring people like B. Zelder and Amar Amaraz and Austin, who did some fantastic work creating new factions and new NPCs, which I would never have thought of because that was just not in my brain. So yeah, so that's most of where we would imagine we would expand Archon. And of course, we're working on the, the Archon system nowadays. So that's in development very slowly. We burned ourselves out on Archon a little bit after working on it for a year and a half. So all of our focus is going to be on the mechanical stuff for a little bit. But I'm excited to do some more setting work in there too. Nice. <clears throat> I'm going to drift away from Archon again, because as I was going through your body of work, I was immediately drawn, because I'm a longtime Dragonlance fan, to your solo adventure, The Test of High Sorcery, which then led me further on to discover that you also were part of another solo adventure, To Hell and Back Again, and that both of these were designed to fit around a campaign book from Watsi, which is fantastic, a fantastic idea, with the Testify Sorcery obviously pairing nicely with the Dragonlance campaign, Shadow of the Dragon Queen, and then to Helen back again with the descent into into Avernus storyline. So, and I love the idea. I love the concept of writing a solo game. It's like hearkening back to my years 
reading Choose Your Own Adventures when I was just a wee lad. And then a couple of solo adventures that usually come in the beginning packets or basic system information sometimes in older Watsy products and some other games so that you can teach yourself the rule set playing by yourself before you make a fool of yourself in front of your friends. Talk to us a little bit about those two and what it was like to write them and put them together. And then specifically, my question is, what are the differences in writing a module as a solo adventure versus trying to keep it open enough and set up for a storyteller to run? I know in yours, you also have information about how to run it with a storyteller as well, instead of just on your own. But yeah, there you go. Yeah, I'm a fellow choose your own adventure child. I spent many a library day just devouring those books. And I'm probably the foundation for why I like games so much is being like, ooh, I'm able to go through a scenario in a book. That's so cool which eventually turned into active fiction, which eventually turned into tabletop gaming. Um, so in terms of what these products are, basically it's collaboration between myself and Donathan Fry. We were both like, we want to do some product, projects together because we've done a lot of, we did a, a lot of actual play streaming together and we did a lot of other projects together, but we hadn't written anything before together before to hell and back again. And so we were like, what if we go old school, we go into that kind of true joint adventure space and we give people an opportunity to play something by themselves or with friends. And it was very interesting. It was our first it, this interesting venture into creating a combination module and true joint adventure book where you have to think about the fact that you are like most of the time when you think about choosing adventure books, it's like pass, fail. Most of the time when you fail, you die in those games. And so we were thinking about, okay, what, and that kind of lended itself really well to the D where everything is a pass, fail situation. But we had to think about people want to bring their different skills that they're better at in different scenarios. How does that branch out into potential different options? And also still give room for it if they decide that, you know what, actually, screw what you say in the book. I want to do this completely different thing. How do we give them those opportunities there? I will say the process ended up being very messy. <laughs> it's a lot of narrative design. I think at one point I had a bunch of sticky notes up on my wall with like string connecting to different paths and branches until I could figure out which one made sense. Um, I love it. <laughs> yeah. And eventually we landed on this great format where people read a passage, they can roll for something or they can choose to do a certain action and that leads them down different paths. And one of the ways we try to make it interesting, especially because they were written as prequels, is to give them long-lasting consequences for their action, which is always the interesting part of tabletop games. But particularly, they're able to then take this and go into their campaign and go, hey, so I did a little, a little prologue of this, and I've ended up with the this trait that has a story hook. So for example, to Hell and Back again, there's one very early on where if you try to steal something from a wizard and he catches you, he puts a spell on you that makes it that if you try to steal anything, the palms of your hands turn red. It's called red-handed because he caught you red-handed. And that just becomes a thing at the end, unless you find a remove curse spell. That's just a thing that you carry on with you. And some of, and a lot of those consequences have much more narrative impact. That was just a fun flippant one. Yeah, after we did to Hell and Back again, we took a couple of years. Somehow we managed, it managed to be timed perfectly for the pandemic. So people really liked that. People really started getting into solo game books because they couldn't play at their home games in person during lockdown and it became very popular. And so we're like, okay, we'll revisit this format later. The opportunity came with the Dragonlance campaign being announced. And we're like, 
we actually ran a Dragonlance campaign that I was in, and was, that was my first exposure to Dragonlance. I totally missed the books. I'm I'm a '90s baby. So it was first <laughs> before I was around. Yeah, we're old. We're, we know. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed the world and the way that we played, and so I was intrigued to create this book, especially with so much. There's so much Dragonlance lore, and there's a lot of like people who are very into it and know a lot of things about it. And then there's going to be a lot of people who are like me who came in not knowing a ton about Dragonlance and might be interested in the campaign and being able to create a book that allows people to explore, the, have a taste of the world and still have fun with it because the text of high sorcery is based on the, the text of high sorcery, the most, one of the most iconic trials in the setting where there isn't a lot of guidance on how to do it. And Don runs, currently runs games on his Patreon. And he, at the time, he was running, like, the Test of High Sorcery for four different players. And so we were very deep into this, like, how do we make this interesting for people to play through? And how do we give it for people to then hop into the game, into the campaign itself? Or if they just wanted to throw it into their own home games and stuff, how do we make that interesting? So we're able to refine it a little bit. It's a lot more narratively branching. It's about double the size of Hell and Back Again, if I remember correctly. There's like thousands of different outcomes that can happen. Thousands of mm. branching combination paths, basically. So yeah, it was a lot of... We had a whole spreadsheet that talked about here are the different branches that we do. Here are the different triggering like traits that you have to get certain branches or to do certain things in here. And all of it comes down to like your character choices in the very, as soon as you open the book, the character choices that you make start informing those things. Even just deciding, just saying like, why do you want to do magic? And you say, I want to help people or I want to become powerful. And that changes your pathways through the book completely because we want the text itself to act almost like a GM, right? There is no other person to play off of. This is how I approach a lot of my own, the solo games that I write. It's the text is there to be your partner and to be there to work with you. And the way we write that is very much in that way. The way that if I was sitting there with a GM, here's how I describe this thing to you. And here are the, and obviously we have to be a little more finite in our options. Like we actually, we present you the, do you go here or here? What do you say? One of these three things, but it's, it still provides an openness for people to, to explore and have that happy medium between classic tabletop stuff and a true zone adventure book, the, the classic uh, type of style game books out there. I That's so absolutely cool. I love, love that answer. There is, as being one of the original Dragonlance fans, Glenn <laughs> as well, but I can tell you that there is the second edition Dragonlance Adventures hardcover there's a very little amount of info on how to do that test. And I remember that not being used. My my good friend and DM at the time, Marty, ran one of my characters through the test of high sorcery. And I, at some point around that, back in the late 80s, ran somebody else through the test of high sorcery. And I remember what I thought about it from reading the novels. And it was before any of the test of high sorcery books had come out. So that we had very little on it other than you walk in, you nearly die, and you might be a mage. That was really <laughs> the nuts and bolts that we had. It was before I'd ever done any White Wolf. It was probably one of the first times where I said, there's nothing that's going to be in a book that I can that's going to help me here. So I put the book away, and I just narratively did something that felt cool and talked through it and 
wildly made up powers and abilities and it was very stream of consciousness it was almost like a holodeck scenario kind of thing that that we were running because star trek next generation had just started so i at least had that kind of concept in my head and i remember feeling that was really good and it was really exciting for the time but i really wanted more i'm gonna definitely be jumping into that to see if that's something that can inform future dragonlance adventures for folks that i run with because i've always as a storyteller steered people away from the test you either do the things up to and after but I, <laughs> but even as we worked on a recent project that we did i that was a comment i specifically made that's not something we want to get into you want to right up to the gate and then everything else is what happens after that you, like that in between the gates is where you don't want to be because it's just not done often and yeah. i couldn't think conceive of any mechanical way so i'm really excited to get the opportunity to kind of dig in and see how that works because just your description of the crime board with the post-its and the string that's what's in my head as to why it wouldn't work so the fact that you did all that work and got that all in place means that's going to be something that's along my way of thinking it and if I may also, the fact that you had to use spreadsheets to go ahead and plot it out. So we also – we can – participated on a third-party Dragonlance product that came out a couple months ago, and one of the things in our adventure was that there was a, a score that kind of went with your character as the adventure proceeded. And depending on how certain encounters went and how the players interacted with this NPC, it impacted the NPC's mental state. And depending, basically, you had the DM had to kind of plot it the entire way, and then and the very Doubt last scene- yeah, doubt and resolve. Are they committed to their path or not? And the very last encounter, the big bad encounter in the adventure is affected by whatever their doubt and resolve score is at the time. And I remember like setting up a Google sheet where it's like, I have all the things that can affect it. I'm going through scenarios. I'm like, okay, if I do this and this, crap, their resolve score is 35 and that's that's way higher than we need it to be. Okay, so we got to retool the score. Yeah. Okay. Hell, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The yeah. numbers don't work. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, crap. Uh, now their doubt score is negative 70. Okay, that's not going to work either. So, uh, like, I, I appreciate the work that I can't even imagine how much work had to go into that because yeah, with thousands of outcomes, that's a lot Yeah, we, we had like 20 touch points. Uh, I can't even yeah. imagine what it would so, have to go ahead and do. And basically, I sat down at one point. I was like, how many different, like, combination of these paths can you go through? And I went through, I was like, oh, like thousands. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> but yeah, one of the major things the spreadsheet did was because at the end of your test, if you survive, uh, you get placed into a a color of your yeah. robe. That's and we cool, had yeah. to make sure we had a balanced amount of potential outcomes, like different traits that you had would add up to different colored robes. Mm. Um, and we had to do the math. Ah, so less that. of a and choice I, at the yeah, time so and more of a choice, of a choice over the more, story. Yeah, so the choices that you make matter. And again, they matter because awesome. you end up getting like these outcomes in the end. Um, so yeah. that is like, now in my. I'm gonna have to buy uh, that. That is now in my cart because <laughs> I <laughs> still put my screen too. I, 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 I literally, <laughs> I, I literally want it's. It was there because I was looking at it, but it's now in my cart. I I literally want to take some of the one of the NPCs that we created for our adventure 
because his adventure is actually about his journey going yep. to begin his trial. And I now want to take that character, make it a PC, <laughs> and run this adventure because I think that would be bloody fantastic. Trials of the Tower Initiate was the name of our adventure, and it's all about Ooh, yeah. a want-to-be mage on the way to try to get accepted by the tower they've got to figure out how to get there i think something that you'll find interesting then is i was in charge of these particular things we present choices for the player character to give up their test i create several different spots in the test itself where they can decide to give up magic in exchange for something else nice that's just mean. <laughs> well, it would kind of be a part of the test for the Tower of High Sorcery with as strict as the rules of magic are in Dragonlance. Yeah. I got to write those parts, and those were very fun to do. So I was like, what could I tempt someone with? And that was, a lot of those were based on answers that they gave that book starts with them traveling through forest. And there are events and choices that they can make there that will affect their test. Like I say, oh, so... You decided to do this thing. Okay, here's the trait that you get. This trait, if you have it later on, you go through this pathway that you would never get otherwise. And so your choices start from the very beginning before you even get through the gates. That's amazing. Um, Like the morality system in Mass Effect or something like that. That's that's incredibly complex. Holy crap. It was very difficult to keep track of, to be like, okay, so did you say that you were, did you decide to stand up to the bully or did you decide to let this poor girl get bullied instead? Even just those things will affect things later on. That sounds like a perfect marriage with the adventure that we put together, to be honest with you, because yeah. a lot of those similar themes were in the adventure is who are you? Is this who you want to be versus, you know, where you are? Because in our story, without too many spoilers, because it's fairly new out at this point, there's a lot of decisions conflict. you're making and yeah. conflict as far as is this the right path to actually go here? It was about a character's decision to be their true and honest self and Very allow so. that true and honest self to show to the world. And that has a lot of absolute implications as far as when we discuss issues surrounding gender identity, when we and gender and title uh, ex- and family acceptance. Quite honestly, th- those were the core ideas that were in our heads as we were crafting the story because magic is so innate and in- within the Dragonlance concept that how could it not be an expression of self and then how you show yourself to the world and internally and then in this cloistered group, that's the whole bag. I love that. That sounds great. Yeah, I'm really intrigued to hear about how your NPC goes through it because there is, I put an NPC in there who you meet very near the beginning, who is this poor girl who does not know what she's doing. She's just, I'm just here because magic's the only thing that I'm maybe okay at. Please tell me what makes, what magic means to you. And that's one of the big deciding factors for your story is what you decide magic means to you. And the tower goes, ah, I heard your answer. All right, let me just add that into my deathly trials <laughs> real quick. <laughs> I see that it's currently rated silver metal on DM's gold. Hopefully it's three oh, purchases away from gold. Yeah, because if it is, I think you're going to hit gold by the time we're done here. So this is, this is, that sounds amazing. But. Kiana, what a fantastic time with you this evening. This has been fantastic. Thank you so very much for coming on and joining us lightning this evening. Round. Lightning <laughs> round. Lightning <laughs> round. All right. Lightning round. All right. All right. I think right. Lightning, lightning round. round.
All right. Have at it. Because I have a lightning round question too, Glenn. So you go ahead. Have at it. <laughs> Ooh, I get to go first on the night hey, lightning? You're the one that called for it, night- I-, I rolled a 13. <laughs> I'm just uh, saying. Okay. All right. Are we rolling for this? Is that what we're doing? All right. <laughs> I, I, think I'm for you. I don't want the, I think, ra- the good lightning round questions I'll, to get scooped. I'll roll again if you want to give me advantage. Nope. I got a 19. You cannot have advantage. <laughs> I got a five. That's a technical nat 20 because Josh already told me I could go first. <laughs> I, I did roll and I took my advantage, Doug, on it. I still only got a 15. I'll let Glenn go first. He's going to call for the lightning round. And then I'll let you, yes. I'll let you pick up the rear. Leonica. Thank you for allowing me to exercise my ability from the Oath of Loyalty Paladin to change initiative orders with anybody on the field. (laughs) One of our subclasses that we wrote recently. Um, What's next? What projects are you working on? What's coming out that we can all be super excited about? Uh, that's a, always the fun question. Uh, several of them are under NDA. I am currently part of the writing team for Confluence TTG, which is super cool. Please imagine a really fantastical world that has collapsed into one part of time. So people from across all points of history are all in this one place. So okay. it's very fun. I've been really enjoying that. And I have a, a game coming out on my itch.io soon-ish, which is called Blood on My Name. It's a solo journaling game where you are a cowboy revenant seeking revenge against your crew who betrayed you and killed you. Uh, yes. And you are out for revenge. That's what's up next for me, basically. <laughs> I do like journaling amazing. games, too. I have a good time. It has, right. it has Amazon movie series written all over it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for my lightning round question, Kiana, so Archon is setting agnostic and it is intentionally written that way as just setting and fabulous and 110 pages of 116 pages of something or setting, something like that. So what game systems has it been played with and which game systems do you think it works best with or not best with? Yeah, I have seen it run in a game that's funny enough called Cyberpunk. It's stylized as CBR plus PNK. At some point, hacked. Lady Blackbird in that system to use for streams. So that was really cool. But I think people can play with whatever it is. But we are developing the Archon system because that was a stretch goal that was hit um, Ooh, okay. when we crowdfunded. So we are building on that. And that is being based on elements from Urban Shadows and Blaze in the Dark and nice. Burn Bright. So we're doing the game design thing of stealing a bunch of mechanics that we like and meshing yeah. with them and squishing them together until they make something. But I understand the game mechanics. That's how it's done. Eventually, yeah. my answer for that will be, well, we have the Archon system, but for now, <laughs> there's a bunch of really cool things out there. We do a bunch of creator-led actual plays here on the show featuring us as players. When the Archon system is written, please come back and run this game for us. Hell yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Nice. All right, lightning My round. lightning round question trails very nicely off of the th- that question. You mentioned that you live-streamed and did actual plays. It sounded like that was past tense as opposed to current or present. But I was wondering, what were some of the games and things that you did live-streams on? So if our audience is so inclined and they want to see you in action as it were they have the opportunity to do yeah i will point you towards salty sweet games that was the channel that i co-produced in the past we very recently finally put it to rest because we are very busy people but we have an entire pulp cthulhu year and a half two year 
campaign on there, Mask of Nihilazotep. That's super fun. And we have a bunch of one-shots. And we also do have a streamed version, like I talked about that Lady Blackbird hack. I ran that on Salty Free Games as well. So you can find that over on YouTube and on Twitch. We have several years of content on there. So yeah, that's most of where my at least somewhat recent stream stuff. There's also several other things around the internet, but many of them have disappeared into the ether somewhere. Pulp Cthulhu is one of my favorite systems out there. It's very fun. I really enjoy it. So yeah, so we did fun. the whole Mask of Nihilazotep campaign. Nice. Um, my character survived, which is all I can ask for. Exactly. I guess that is our show for this evening. So Ken, thank you so very much for joining us. Before we sign off tonight, let our listeners know where they can find you on the internet and find all the content that you're putting out. You can keep up with me on social media as at Kiana S, so my first name plus the letter S at the end. But I also release my self-published games over at kianas.itch.io, and I have a website that's kianas.card.co. That's pretty much everything. Let's see. What do we got coming up on the channel? So next week, we're finishing up our round of interviews here for February and for BIPOC month. Next month, for the month of March, we're going to be featuring all female creators in the tabletop role-playing game space. And we're going to be starting off with an absolutely killer interview with friends of the show, the Rainbow Dice Club. Really excited to get Dusty and Ariana out here to go ahead and, and talk shop. So that'll be a good time. And then this coming Tuesday, we're actually going to be featuring an actual play with friend of the show, Kevin Burrup, who you may remember from months and months ago originally got us into the folks over at Against the Dark Master and running that game. Kevin has written his own game. It's coming up on Kickstarter shortly and he's going to be coming in-house to go ahead and run a game for the three of us. So that'll yeah, be that on, out of uh, our Tuesday. very first questions from the audience episode. I know, exactly. Yes. Oh, from way back when. Back when we were youths and didn't know what we were doing. This has been just a tremendously good time and like I said, it allowed us to kind of allowed us to get into some content that we don't always get into, specifically talking about the politics of Archon and really great to do that. Also, thank you for your body of work that brought us into the history of games that we've played, whether it yeah. be comic books and Judge Dread for me, Dragonlance, and which is both history and future and current and present. Those are great synergies, and this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me again. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been yeah. a pleasure. And everybody, we'll talk to you again next week when we have a Rainbow Dice Club in shop. So talk to you then. Have a good week, everybody. Thanks so much. Good night, all. Later. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at TT Journeys, joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. Our full episodes come out every week on Friday. And every Tuesday features actual play and gameplay showcase episodes. Looking for early access? You can support the show and get episodes before everyone else at www.patreon.com forward slash ttjourneys. Check it out today and see all the awesome benefits we bring to our supporters. Lastly, if you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible, you would really appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And we bid you fair tides, friends, for Legends Await.